Welcome to the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast with Dr. Fuck and the Ayatollah of Alcohola, Ian Wadley, better known as Wadzilla. So enjoy another awesome, incredible episode of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. Bam, 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 diddly dee. Hey, smack him a gob and bang, bang, pizza skulls and look out. It is I, Dr. Fuck, and with me is... Oh, yeah! The Ayatollah Alcoholic Ian Wadley. Wadzilla. Hell yeah. Wadzilla. Yes, sir. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. Finally, we get to do an episode we want to do. Yes. And it's going to kick much ours, because we're going to do some unique shit with this episode. Uh, Like, it's, it's, it's a full D.O. episode. No news. We're just going to talk Dio, and then we're going to go into Holy Diva, the album. Yes. So, what, what are you, Ed McMahon now? hey Hey. You are correct, sir. That's right. So, yeah, dude, what's going on? That, man, I'm just, I'm happy as fuck. It's 4th of July Eve. And, uh, man, we're, we're doing something we want to talk about. We're getting back to the roots of this show. And that we want to talk about. And, uh, fuck, dude, we're talking about one of the greatest, not only metal albums, but one of the greatest albums of all time. The debut from the Dio band, Holy Diver. Fucking A. Holy shit. Holy Diver. This is, uh... You guys... This is, is this what you would consider all killer, no filler? Without a doubt. Yes. Without a doubt. And it contains, and you probably won't uh, guess, and don't try to guess now because you'll ruin it. Okay. But it contains my all-time favorite Dio song from the Dio band. Nice. Nice. Well, well, that's easy because this, this is their best album of all time. I don't care what Martin Popoff says. Yeah, his is Dream Evil. Yeah, and I love Martin Popoff, and I love me some Dream Evil. Yeah. But but I, I don't know what fucking planet you got to be on to not say this is the greatest D.O.M. of all time. I mean, well, he's in Planet Canada. I guess so. They're, they're so nice. I, you know, you you probably play him fucking Angry Machines and he'd be like, oh, this is the best Dio album of all time. I, I heard that's the favorite album of the French. Oh, see? That makes a lot of sense because they're fucking nuts. <laughs> fucking French. That's a, one of the worst Dio albums. God damn. But this one, holy shit, is, is this a fucking masterpiece? Spoiler alert! Uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you, man, how I discovered this album was kind of a freak accident. Um, at the time, this was uh, really my most crazy, rebellious time in my life before this, well, when this album came out, because at this time, I, I pretty much, I, I wouldn't, I, I kind of ran away from home, you know, uh, a year prior, 17. I wasn't allowed to leave home yet, but I did. And I was living with, you know, a bunch of, you know, I mean, the guy that I, the guy I lived with initially, he's dead now because he was a heroin junkie. That's who I was hanging out with. But man, I saw what heroin did to people. It was like, no, nah, 
you know what? I'll try everything but that, you know? And I didn't, but, you know, he died from it. And uh, he was a good guy, Pete. Dreadlock Pete, good dude, you know, rest in peace. But um, so I'm living on 71st Street on the beach. And I'm working at Publix in the daytime, stock boy. And then at night I get fucked up, you know. Yeah, you name it, I did everything but acid. I mean, I did acid. <laughs> I did everything but fucking uh, heroin. So I knew a guy called Hoser, believe it or not. That was a, I had the weirdest friend's name. I got friend called Buckweed, another one called Hoser. So I'm at Hoser's house, and I see the Holy Diver album there. And see, at this time, I was like, I had no time for metal magazines or nothing. You know, I was just working hard and getting fucked up at night. And I was like, whoa, Dio? You know, I didn't even know this album was out yet, you know? And he goes... Yeah, man, it's a really good album. It's awesome, man. Want to hear it? I was like, of course, dude. And yeah, that's my freaky story. I didn't even, you know, I wasn't reading metal magazines at that time. I was too busy trying to survive that I wasn't keeping up to date for like yeah, a good six months there. And I discovered that, you know, it was no fanfare, I guess, you know, when it first came out. But man, was I happy when Rainbow in the Dark kind of blew up at the time and it became a hit, I was so happy for Dio, man. Because of the album, too. It's like, God, this album's so good and now it's got a hit, you know? So, yeah. But unfortunately, the the un, the Holy Diver tour did not come to South Florida, so I did not see it. But I did see the Last in Line tour, and I don't know. You know what, man? Everybody praises Sacred Heart, that tour. Fuck that. It was good, don't get me wrong, but that last in line tour, the shit that went on stage, the production, the whole thing, that was like, man, one of the, that was hands down the greatest time I saw Dio. And uh, stage shows, just fucking unbelievable, man. And that's another great album, Last in Line. But yeah, that's how I discovered Holy Diver. Uh, how about you? Uh, well, shit, I discovered Dio through uh metal mania on mtv and i i'll never forget you know friday going to my grandparents house after school they had mtv and uh i saw the video for rock and roll children and loved it loved it thought it was fucking great went the next day to a store called hornsby's that we had in illinois and uh but Dio, Sacred Heart, and uh, Ingve Malmsteen Trilogy on the same day. And loved them both, but I, I had no idea, you know, I, I knew who Sabbath was, but I wasn't listening to Sabbath at the time. Um, all, all I knew was the, this Rock and Roll Children song that I loved. Uh, so I got Sacred Heart, and I dug it at the time. Then, like, maybe a couple months later, uh, I saw the video for Last in Line. I was like, oh my god, that's even better than the, the shit on Sacred Heart. And then I want to say I, I found Heaven and Hell and then I got Holy Diver. Uh, but this is all, you know, within 1986. Uh, but holy shit, you know, what a voice what a fucking album unfortunately 
I never got to see Dio, you know, the Dio band. Well, I never saw, like, the real Dio band. But I didn't see, like, Dio solo until Magica. You know, because I wanted to wait till there wasn't a crowd and I could get right up front. Holy shit, fucking Magica. Woo! That uh, was a great tour, though. Did you see it with Ingvay and Dara? Yes, yes. Ingve, yeah, that, that's the infamous where uh, it was fat Ingve and he tried to slide the guitar and it hit his belly and, and, and the guitar just flopped. <laughs> and everybody started laughing. Oh, it was great. And Dora was great. You know, Dio was amazing. But the first time I saw Dio himself live was on the Dehumanizer tour. Uh, saw that at the Aragon Brawl Room. Was that with Danzig? Yes, Danzig. Man, oh. you, know, you know what was cool about that was I've never seen Danzig do Heart of the Devil. Yeah. I mean, I've seen Danzig a bunch of times. And then he th decided to pull it out as an opening act. I was like, and man, do I love Heart of the Devil. I am Heart of the Devil. Man, when he played that. And you know how I hate the blues. But there right. are exceptions in that song. Fuck yeah. it. But yeah, that was great. And then I got to see uh, Heaven and Hell. Uh, on, uh, I, I don't, it wasn't the Devil You Know tour. It, I think. Was it with Alice Cooper and Queensryche? Yeah, yeah, yeah we were I at the same that. show. Yeah, we were at the same show. It was in South I think Florida. that was the last time I saw Dio. What was, what was first? That or Master of the Moon? Because I saw that tour too. Can't remember. I think that was the last time I saw Dio was the Heaven and Hell one. That was the Dio year. That they yeah, were putting the Dio year. Yeah, I almost want to say Master of the Moon came out after that, but I didn't see Dio after that. And that was the last time I saw Dio. Master yeah, yeah, I, I I could be wrong though, but yeah, yeah, we were at the same show. That's when Queensrÿche was touring for that cover album. Oh my God! And Jeff Tate brought out a saxophone. Yeah. Was it, uh, Welcome to the Machine. That was terrible. Yeah. Alice yeah. was amazing. Alice, Alice got hung. I've never yeah. seen Alice hung. He's always, uh, you know, they always chop his head off. But that, that night, they hung his ass. Yeah. No, that was a great. Alice always fucking. But you know, you know, it was so cool too. Alice opened up with "It's Hot Tonight." That was awesome. That that I don't remember, but I love that song. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, Dio, I'm so lucky I got to see him three times. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget when he, when he passed away, man. That was a big deal. I, I would have to say, like, the ones that hit me the hardest uh, were Dio and Lenny. And when, when Dio died here in New Orleans, there's a local tattoo parlor. And they're like, hey, man, we're doing, like, you know, dirt cheap Dio tattoos in honor of Dio. And it was like the, the logo. So I, I went and got it, but I wanted something like a little bit different. So I got like, you know, 47 and 10, you know, when he was born and when he died and shit. Um, but no, man, that was a big deal. Cause Dio was just, I mean, he's fucking Ronnie James Dio. The greatest fucking singers of all time. I don't care if it's, you know, metal or just regular music i mean his voice transcends and you know what i love is like dudes love dio and chicks love dio yeah you're right 
You know, and, and, and he's not a pretty boy, and he's short, but, you know, chicks just go crazy for that fucking voice, and, and you know, guys do too, and, and I always, I, I never understood that, but I loved it. I, I love that, you know, it just, the, the talent rose above all the, the usual shit that would happen in rock and roll, and popularity and what people like you know you know you know coming from the 80s and stuff you know there wasn't too many girls that liked bands that weren't pretty you know it was another band chicks dug judas priest yeah yeah you know and that could be like you know chicks have a better gaydar than guys do you know and and chicks love gay guys it's a fact it's a fact I, i knew this really hot chick dude she worked at a strip club, but she wasn't a stripper. She was one of those bartenders that dressed really skimpy. I mean, she was extremely hot. Here's a really weird, not her favorite Judas Priest song, her favorite song of all time. Some heads are gonna roll. Ain't <laughs> that weird? Wow. It's a great song, wow. but still, for it's yeah. a, her favorite song of all time. Yeah. You know, pretty weird. Yeah. yeah, no, but that's great when you see, like, especially the era, we- the era we grew up in like i said to see chicks overlook that shit when so often it was like you know chicks love poison you know chicks love the motley crew yeah motley crew slaughter winger yeah shit like that you know it was it was just based on how they looked you know and i used to have this theory and i I still do to an extent like the, the uglier the band the better they are because they have nothing to rely on you know, it's like, you, you better write some good fucking songs if you're ugly, you know? And I, I tried to tell C.C. DeVille, it's like, you're an ugly motherfucker. You better learn how to play guitar. He didn't listen. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> but what are you going to do? But, I, I mean, Dio is just, holy fucking shit, you know? And th- and this album in particular, uh, I, I, I mean, think, think back to the year 1983. Can you think of a better album that came out in 1983 than Holy Diver? No, no. Yeah. No, and and what a year! Born Again, Bark at the Moon, Shout at the <laughs> Devil. I mean, the great album. That was a good year, but no, Holy Diver yeah. rose above them all. Exactly. You know, and I'll I'll even go. You know, I don't know if you'll agree with me, and if you don't, you're wrong. But that's okay. Yeah, I love being wrong. I can't okay. help it. I'm stupid. Uh- Okay, do you, do you, honestly, honestly, and I'll give you some time to think about it. Did Ozzy ever put out an album as good as Holy Diver? Yes. Okay, you're right. I'm dumb, I'm dumb. I think Diver Madman's better. Okay, well, you're wrong. But, I mean, hey, but but at least you picked the best Ozzy album, though. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you that, but no. Th- uh, you this- know what? Uh, uh, it's a spoiler. But, you know, this is the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast, and I am very uh, attuned to the people. Dude, somebody donated for me to do Diver Madman versus the second uh, uh, MSG album. And I was like, dude, this is going to get... The MSG ain't going to get a point. It got two points. I couldn't believe it. What what songs lost might I ask? Uh, uh, you can't kill rock and roll, which I worship, and oh, wow. uh, and little dolls I worship too. 
But and on another uh, the first Ghost album versus King Diamond Abigail, and my favorite Ghost album didn't get not one point. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, uh, King Diamond Abigail starts with an intro, so at least Ghost will get a point. But I didn't realize the first Ghost had an intro too that wasn't as good as Funeral. You know, I was like, it's a great intro, but I was like, God right. damn, man, this ain't gonna win at all. <laughs> Well, they, but but in my opinion, and it's just mine. Uh, even Ozzy, and I'm not trying to be an Ozzy hater. I don't think Ozzy ever put out an album as, as solid as this, because I don't think Ozzy solo ever put out an all killer no filler. I well, think I, I will say that I do prefer Rising, Long Live Rock and Roll, uh, Heaven and Hell, and Mob Rules to Holy Diver. Oh, I wow. Think, yeah, I like all those albums more. And I want to give a shout-out. I don't know if you've ever saw me. I know you're drunk and you won't remember, but I'll give a shout-out to everybody listening. There's an amazing, amazing dude on YouTube called... It's called The Daily Doug. And what I, he, love, I love Daily Doug. Did love you ever it. see Doug <laughs> listen to Sign of the Southern Cross? No. Dude, the guy fucking flipped his wig, man. He could he couldn't believe what he was hearing. You got to see that one. He went he fucking ape shit on that. He liked it or didn't like it? No, I loved it. He okay. couldn't believe how good it was. He he thinks Dio's the greatest singer ever. Oh, I, I love Daily Doug. Yeah, hey, I love that dude. You know, there's sometimes Daily Doug will spark up a bowl before he starts. <laughs> oh, really? I've never seen that. Yeah, he do, he's done it not that many times, but I I think I could be wrong, but I think it was a Pink Floyd song that in the middle he's like, oh man, hold on a second. He took out his pipe and started smoking and went back to the song. <laughs> That's a, well, see, see mainly I, I only watch the Daily Doug when he does Zappa. Uh, I've, I, well, I've seen a couple others. Oh my God. You know a quote I saw recently from Lou Reed? Was yeah. Lou Reed, Lou Reed, the guy from Lulu, right? Velvet, Velvet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said the least talented musician ever, <laughs> and he's a moron. He doesn't know yeah. music. I was like, oh. Yeah, and, and and here's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know who they had in Duck Spring Zappa? Who? Lou Reed. No way. True story. True wow. Story. And he, I guess he liked them then. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I think it's just like, uh, okay, I'll do it. You know, they probably paid him. Dude, that's uh, fucked up. That's like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame asking you and me to induct fucking Sammy Agar. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, love love Daily Doug. I gotta I gotta check that out. Yeah, got watch Silent Southern Cross. It's probably my favorite one he's ever done. Yeah, but I mean, Dio, Dio's voice and you know this album is just so on point and like you know we're talking about albums from 83 it's like yeah born again and 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 you know park at the moon and all those came out the same year and and this one takes a big fucking shit on all those albums as much as i love those you know park at the moon and born again they're not even nowhere near in the same class as, as fucking holy diver I mean, it's just fucking perfection. I li listened to it two times, uh, you know, today. And, and I didn't bother taking notes because I don't have to. This yeah, fun. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just 
I couldn't believe how fucking good it was. I will say, now I think about it, I like it more than Long Live Rock and Roll. I don't know what I was thinking there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like it better than any fucking Rainbow album. It's it's your favorite album that has Dio singing. Um, better than, would, than How Mob Rules. I well, I I would say that that's a hard hard toss up between this and Heaven and Hell because Heaven and Hell I believe is is a perfect fucking album. Um. Mob Rules, man, the highs on it are so high, but there's one song I consider a throwaway on, on Mob Rules. Flipping Away? No. No. Oh, man, then you're then you're fucking wrong. And yeah, I love no. Slipping Away, by the way. No, I love Slipping Away. On and but, on? Over and over? No, the, the one I've always considered kind of like not up to par on, on Mob Rules is Turn On The Night. All right, everybody out there, if you want to be my co-host on Rock and Metal Combat, <laughs> podcast, leave your fucking, uh, leave your resume. Yeah. Now, I, now, and it's not that I hate Turn On The Night, but it, to me, it's the weakest song by far on the album. And I think it's like a, it, it, it's a poor, uh, like, Neon Night sequel. Well, you see there, I agree with you. That's a problem I have. I love the song. But the problem is, it's too neon nights. Yeah. And not as good, I'll admit it. But I love when he says, turn on the night, and Iomi does that. <laughs> that shit's awesome, man. Yeah, but it's all like that. Turn on the night, it feels so right. I I, I don't know. It just, to, lyrically and musically, it, it's just not up to par with the, with the rest of the other stuff. And, uh, you know, it loses a point for not having Bill Ward. And I love Vinny Apice, but not so much in Sabbath. I, I think Vinny Apice sounds his best in Dio. You know, uh, much better. Especially you hear the live stuff, you know, and, and I've said this before in other episodes. I think the only other drummer that's ever come close to Bill Ward in Black Sabbath is uh, Tommy Clitoris. And, you know, he didn't play on any studios, but if you, you listen to the live album... That guy is faithful to Bill Ward and does the jazzy style drumming where everybody else is like, mm, I'm going to put on my own stamp. I'm going to do this, you know. I don't give a fuck. Cozy Powell, you know, it, Cozy Powell's drumming had nothing compared to Bill Ward's. You well, know, Bill Ward is the greatest drummer of all time. Yes, I agree. Nobody I, is as good as Bill Ward. I, I agree. My, my three favorite drummers, and I've always said this, uh, number one is Bill Ward, number two is Stuart Copeland, number three is Neil Peart. And technically, Neil Peart and Stuart Copeland bury Bill Ward, but I don't give a fuck. Bill Ward is my favorite drummer of all time. You know, just, you know, the jazziness, the looseness, you know. and it, I, I think he buries John Bonham. Don't he, I don't, you know, Bonham might be in my top ten. Yeah, Tom Bonham would probably be my second favorite. Yeah, I, and and that's no disrespect to John Bonham, but I'm just saying to my ears, nothing comes close to Bill Ward. Well, I agree with you there, man. But Vinny Apice is great, but I think he's much better suited for Dio than, than he is Sabbath. And that's another thing that takes mob rules just a hair, you know, 
between that and turn on the night takes it a hair under that. So, so getting back to what you were asking, the only thing that comes close to Holy Diver is, is you know, Heaven and Hell are kind of like, eh, you know, right there. But, you know, another thing that's amazing about Holy Diver is Vivian Campbell. Oh, my God. Holy shit. On, on this, you know, you listen to this album and you listen to what he's doing now. That'd be like me quitting this show to go do Weather on the Ones for, uh, you know, a freeform rock podcast. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, how do you go from this to that? And, and you play that and be happy and, and content, you know, and I mean, I, I think listening to the album today, I, I've never been so like zeroed in on Vivian and, and what he did. I, I just had a like even greater appreciation if that was possible for what this fucker plays on this. Like, holy shit, you know. And, you know, I, I love Last in Line, but to me there's some clunkers on that. And, and you get the Sacred Heart, there's even more clunkers on that. But on this, I mean, just holy shit. It, it's like it's like Ioni meets fucking Eddie Van Halen, in my opinion, what he plays. It's, holy fuck. And, you know, it's... To me, he shits all over fucking what he did with Blackmore. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I like Rainbow. I, I should say I love Rainbow, but to me, you know, Sabbath era Dio and and the first couple Dio albums are, are better than than that shit. To me, my favorite is uh, Rainbow Rising. Uh, my the favorite thing that Dio did for me was Rainbow Rising. And it does have a clunker. I don't like Do You Close Your Eyes. But man, the rest of that album is just unbelievable. But going back to Vivian Campbell for a second. The first time I heard it, when I was telling you, I was at Hoser's house. And I'm listening to this guy, and I'm like, who the fuck is this? This guy sounds like Gary Moore. And I still say that. And not too long ago, it was I, I heard a really cool interview with Vivian Campbell. And yeah, Gary Moore is his biggest influence. And I was like, no wonder. There's a lot of Gary Moore in Vivian Campbell and John Sykes, I've noticed. They they they, yeah. they took a lot from that guy. And and that can only be good. Because if you oh, can yeah. play as good as Gary Moore, you know what Gary Moore's secret is? Because Gary Moore is definitely in like my top five. His secret of how he became such a great guitar player was his very first guitar. The action was too high. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, the strings are too far from the from the from neck. the fret from the fret. Yeah, and he played that for years, and then finally, when he got a real decent guitar, he was like, "Wow!" I mean, the the thing about Gary Moore and Vivian Campbell, man, it's one of those things like you you hear like people go, "Well, you know, I'd rather listen to somebody with emotion than shredders," but Gary Moore, Vivian Campbell, and Richie Blackmore have them both. They can both shred, but they have that emotion. You know, that's just so fucking amazing. You know? Yeah. But yeah but, I think uh, Vivian Campbell, man, because of Gary Moore is why he's so fucking amazing. But, you know, Richie Blackmore dresses like a Keebler elf, so that takes him down a notch. Hey, what are you, a Poison fan? <laughs> <laughs> fucking shut with your eyes? 
Hey, hey, I, I'd rather listen to Poison than Blackmore's Night. That's for goddamn sure. Well, I dig Blackmore's Night in small doses. Yeah, yeah I'll take it outside. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, this is just... Oh, man. I, I'm just so, so happy listening to this. And we're never, ever going to get this shit again. Nope. You know, never will you hear anything, you know, a, a voice like that, you know, guitars like that, you know, just the songwriting, everything. What what a fucking masterpiece. And, uh, I, I mean, even Dio, you know, I mean, it was all downhill, <laughs> you know, I, I mean... I mean, if you, if, you, if you honestly think about it, you know, Holy Diver, he would never, ever, I don't care if he was back in Sabbath, what he was doing, he would never reach these heights heights again. Nope. And, you know, not on record. But, uh, but it's there for all eternity. You know, and I'm sitting here thinking of, I'm like, every goddamn song is a masterpiece. And I, I, I was thinking about, you know, you and me, I think we both agree, the greatest band of all time is the Beatles, you know, overall. Yeah. I would take this over Let It Be. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and speaking of the Beatles and Dio, Dio became Dio because of Eleanor Rigby. He heard that song, he goes, wow, you can sing a song about death and this and that, you know, and instead of the drive-through and good golly Miss Molly. It changed his life to... The deal we know. Eleanor Rigby did it. Oh, makes sense. But I, I was there thinking, I was like, man, if I, you know, you always hear that desert island shit, you know, it's like, oh, you can have Let It Be or you can have Holy Diver. Like, well, I'll take Holy Diver. Oh, you know, I'd, I'd agree with you there. I would. You know? And, and that, that's saying something. If I'll pick something over the greatest band of all time, you know, I mean, granted, it's, it's probably, you know, one of their, their least albums, but I still love it, you know, but. I mean, there is not one bad song on this fucking album. And, oh, man, I just wish, you know, you know, you'd go back in time. I, I, I wish I didn't wait so long, you know, and it's funny, I say wait so long, you know. I didn't hear this, song, this album until three years after it came out. But I wish I would have been like a first day buyer, you know. I, I wish my little fucking, you know, eight or nine year old ass would have, you know, saw this tour. You know, because I know they played Chicago, but, uh, you know, it's just, you don't get shit like this back. And and there are good new bands and, and, you know, and stuff that keeps music going, but there's nothing like this. There's nothing, this, this level of craftsmanship, you know, singing and writing and playing. It's, it's just phenomenal. Phenomenal. I, I want to tell you, uh, speaking of Dio, and I, I was talking about this the other day, I think on a video somewhere. You know, my all-time favorite song, Stargazer. And the way, well, before I even get into that, you know, you're talking about, you know, because, you know, listening to you, of course, I'm older than you, so I'm like, God, you know, you're such a latecomer and all this shit. But, you know, so was I, because when... Black Sabbath played the Miami Highline and the Heaven and Hell tour, and my parents didn't allow me to go. And I snuck out. 
I saw the show, I came back home, and I got a hundred lashes from my dad with the belt. He beat the fuck out of me. And it was worth every goddamn lash. But before I went to that show, they were giving away tickets on the radio, and they said, what band was Dio in before Black Sabbath? And I had no idea. And then they <laughs> came back, and they said Rainbow. And Rainbow, I already knew down to earth and difficult to cure at the time. I was like, he was in Rainbow? That shitty band? <laughs> no, I love Rainbow. I love in every incarnation. But of course, the deal is my favorite. But how I discovered Stargazer is a freak of nature. And it turned out to be my favorite song of all time. Uh, I was on the beach. And what I would do, I would go party in the beach. And then my the last bus that would come was at 12.15. I remember this shit. Perfect. And I missed it. I missed the bus. I couldn't crash at any of my friends' house because they were all teenagers and the parents weren't allowed. So I ended up sleeping in the park with my little radio. I had a little, you know, little boom box. And the, at two in the morning, they played Stargazer. It's like back then DJs were like, shit, the boss is asleep. Let me play this. Cause you know, they would never play Stargazer. They played that shit at two in the morning and I was like, what the fuck? I know that's Dio, you know? I didn't know Stargazer at the time. That's how I discovered Stargazer, being stranded on the beach and they played on the radio at two in the morning, which is such a freaky little thing, you know? And, and you know, you know, you know, it's funny too, is I was thinking uh, today, you know, while I was listening to the album, I was, I was fucking around on Facebook and I saw a post from a friend of mine in Florida and I remember him telling me the story about him and his brother, and I think you might have been at this show. I could be wrong, but they used to live in Miami. I know from Central Florida, but uh, at this time they lived in Miami. They saw Black Sabbath on the Mob Rules tour in in South Florida, and the Outlaws opened up. Yeah, I was there. What Mob Rules tour, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 I saw that. I went with that to, with my brother. Was that at the Sportatorium? Yeah. Same exact set list as uh, Live Evil. Oh, man. And and they just said how great it was. You know, Unbelievably great. Yeah, my, my buddy and, and his brother went, and they said it was just fucking amazing. Uh, and I remember, I remember telling me the story, like, in the, you know, in the mid-'90s, and I was like, the outlaws opened up? Like green grass and high tides are like, yep. And you and know, like, you know something? History has it wrong, too. Because if you go on Google and type it up, it says Black Sabbath with Doc Holliday. I was like, it wasn't Doc Holliday. It was the fucking Outlaws. Yeah. Oh, really? Wow. Maybe, maybe Doc Holliday was booked and then they canceled and Outlaws took over. But yeah, totally. And I love the Outlaws. And it was cool. I was psyched to see them, too. And they were great. It was a great double bill, man. An odd double bill, but still a great one. You know, the one thing I'll never forget about the Mob Rules Tour was back then, I mean, way back then in the day, it was a thing to go to concerts with binoculars if you had nosebleeds. And I had nosebleeds for for Mob Rules. And there was this older hippie guy. He was like, hey, man, can I borrow your, can, can I borrow your binoculars for Iron Man? <laughs> <laughs> I gave up my binoculars for Iron Man, but yeah, that that, that was uh, that's the one thing I remember a lot of that show. That old hippie guy, too, hey, man, 
<laughs> and I remember too at the highlight there were some people up. I, I was upstairs at the having an tour, and there were people up there bashing deal. Like, fuck this, where's Ozzy, blah, blah, blah. And let me tell you something. They changed their mind after the show. And I'll never forget, dude, the coolest shit that night, because I took fucking binoculars. When they played Sweet Leaf, Dio walked out with a joint and was smoking a joint during that fucking song, dude. That was epic. Nice. Yeah, Highlight is not a big venue, so being up a little bit, you can still get a great view. Awesome. Well, something I, I, I thought we'd, we'd do for this that's kind of special is is I have a special deluxe edition of Holy Diver um, that I don't even know if you can get anymore that has a lot of interviews. So what we're going to do is in between these songs, we're going to play, uh, you know, Dio talking about the stuff. So before we get into the album, let's start off with this. And the question was, was having your own band something you always intended, or was it more a reaction to the circumstances of Black Sabbath? So let's hear what Dio has to say. You never ever had any plans to be a quote solo artist unquote, uh, and I, I to this point never think of myself as that. Um, Dio was a band, of course, that came out of a lot of frustration, having been in some bands that uh, you know I'd been um, released from or. Um, whatever the, the nice word is that makes us our egos feel a little bit better but you know booted out was you know what happens it happens to everyone and you either can deal with that or you can't deal with that uh, the first time it happened mainly in the rainbow days didn't make me immediately want to to get uh, you know to have my own band but I did consider it and in fact I did work with a few musicians that were in elf before once again with Mickey Lee Sewell with Mark Nassif um, and uh, Craig Gruber, as a matter of fact, and uh, we were going to put a band together because there was an interim between Rainbow and the next band I was in, which was Black Sabbath. So when the Sabbath uh, invitation uh, came about, uh, which initially started only as Tony and I going to put a band together. It had nothing to do with Black Sabbath at all. Tony was going to leave the band. He wasn't happy with them at all. Uh, through a mutual friend, I was living in Connecticut at the time because that's where we went with Rainbow to live. That's where Richie wanted to live. So we, we moved from California back to the East Coast again. Uh, at that point, um, uh, I stayed there after my time in Rainbow was up because I really had nowhere else to go and didn't know what else to do. But it was a very difficult situation in New York. Uh, I wasn't really part of the New York City scene, didn't want to be part of that scene. And all the musicians that I knew who were playing the kind of music I wanted to play were back in Los Angeles. But we stayed there. And, and during that time, as I say, a mutual friend uh, who lived in California called and said that she had uh, talked to Tony Iommi at the Rainbow one night, famous Rainbow Bar and Grill, and he wanted to know if he could get my telephone number. So she called me, and I said, yeah, sure. So Tony called, and he told me, as I mentioned to you, that he, wanted to, he was going to leave the band and uh, form something else, and he knew I was not in Rainbow anymore, and he liked all, all the things that I'd done, and would I be interested in doing something with him. So we were actually started on, um, yeah, let's do that. Uh, he said, do you, have, do you have any musicians in mind? And I said, well, you know, I have a drummer. And he said, well, you know, I, I really want to use Bill because he had played with Bill all of his life, of course. And I said, that's fine with me. I said, you know, I said, there are other players. We can deal with it. Uh, so we talked for, for a while, uh, for a period of three or four months. And then uh, the conversation stopped because they were then at that point offered, uh, it was their, going to be their 10th 
anniversary and they were going to do a big reunion tour. They had had a couple albums before that particular point that were not very successful. Um, so it was a very downtime for them. So, uh, as I say, everything stopped. Uh, money's a great deterrent for putting uh, musicians together. Eventually, I moved back to California again. And lo and behold, one night, uh, saw Tony in the Rainbow, who was a bit sheepish about it all and sent someone over to say, oh, do you think you'd maybe say hello to me? And so I did, of course. And uh, from there, I was invited to uh, to where they were rehearsing, and then the rest became what it became with Sabbath. Uh, so... Uh, I went into a situation where uh, leaving even was more hurtful than the first time. And after that, I think after both of those boots up, up, the, up the heiress, uh, that's when I decided that uh, I better take control of my own life. I think I know what I want. I think I paid enough dues, and I, I, this will give me a chance to choose the people that I want to play with and make the kind of music that I want to make without having any outside interference. So at that point, that's what happened. But it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't, you know, the this massive heap on my shoulders that said, do it yourself, boy, you can do it. Not at all. It took a while because I never had that solo attitude. And, and when I did put Dio together, it never was a solo project to me. It had my name on it, which I thought was clever from a business standpoint. After all, coming out of Sabbath, people knew who I was uh, and uh, Rainbow. And so what better connection for some kind of instant recognition than to call the band Dio? So, of course, everyone thought, well, Mr. Ego's done it again. He's called the band after himself because he controls everything and, you know, he just hires people and away he goes. But that's not what happened. Uh, at that point, that's when we started the search for the musicians to make the Holy Diver album what it was. All right, man. It's awesome. It's like Dio's here with us. Yeah, he's our co-host. Yeah, do, we actually we have Dio here with us, but now it's time for us to talk. And Ralph, why don't you talk about the opening track, "Stand Up and Shout"? Well, before I get into this, I haven't heard these audio clips yet, so I don't know if he mentions this. So I, I should bring this up. Uh, before Live Evil, Warner Brothers gave Dio a solo deal. Yes, a solo band. So he wasn't out of Black Sabbath. He didn't quit Black Sabbath. Uh, before they gave him that solo deal, so that's interesting. Right, he does. Uh, he does. He does get into that in, in one of the other questions. Okay. Well, anyway, um, stand up and shout. I mean, can there, as awesome as this album is, can any other song on this album open this, other than stand up and shout? That is the perfect opening track. It's just rip roaring yeah, right right from the get go. That that crunchy killer riff. And, uh, and Vivian coming in, and it's just a ripping tune. And though Jimmy Bain is not very much up front with his bass, and he doesn't even do like anything mind-bending, but Jimmy Bain is so important, extremely important to this album and the Dio band as far as uh, the songs. He had a lot to do with the songs. Other than Holy Diver was all Ronnie. But every other song, uh, I'm sure Bain had a lot to do with this. But yeah, and that solo, man, it's just ripping, ripping, crushing. And that, and again, these fucking lyrics, man. It's like broken glass. You get cut before you see it. So open up your eyes. How badass is that? Ooh. Man, amazing. Love it. What do you think? Uh, favorite song on the album. I give this five fucking Ruben De La Rosas. Yeah. I, I love it. And and this one was written just by Dio and Jimmy Bain. Uh, you know, and listening to it, you know, 
and put it into context how heavy this was for 1983. I mean, I mean, you think about how heavy it was with Sabbath, but it was a slower, you know, crunchier sound. And this is just fucking rip roaring, you know, in that fucking chorus. You've got desire, so let it out. You've got the power. Stand up and shout. I mean, it's just, oh, oh, man. It's fucking amazing. Uh, you know, and I think this, this should open up like every Dio live show. You know, not only the perfect song to open up the album, but every Dio live show should have started out with this. A lot of them did. I remember um, Last in Line, first time I saw him, he opened with Stand Up and Show. Yeah, makes sense, man, because, I mean, what a way to kickstart. I mean, you know, and and then to think about it, you know, this being the debut album and, you know, you got fired slash quit Sabbath. You know, and then and you come out with this. And as much as I love Born Again, I mean, gr- great fucking album. Doesn't hold a candle to fucking Holy Diver. Neither does Bark at the Moon. I mean, this is just, this is next level fucking shit here. And he just went from strength to strength, in my opinion. You know, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, what he did with Sabbath is light years ahead of Rainbow. You know, and then you come to this. Like I say, man, it's neck and neck with Heaven and Hell as as an important album. As as a, you know, I, I I think what does it with this is every fucking song is goddamn amazing and mind blowing. There is not one fucking shit track on this album. And the funny thing is, there is a B side. Um. From the single, the first single was Holy Diver, and there's a B side that would end up on Last in Line. But well, it it's, a, a, it's a different version on Last in Line. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's it's a re recorded version. But I, I was listening to it today because, you know, on this deluxe edition, they, they have all that stuff, and I'm listening to it, and it's an ori- original version. I'm like, how smart? How smart to just leave this at nine tracks? They didn't, they didn't even have to follow my rule of 10. They could have put that on there and still been within my rule of 10. But I believe that song in that version would have lessened this album. You know, it was absolutely just genius. Nine songs, you know, it's like 40 minutes done perfection. That I, That's how all albums should be. I blame Hysteria. <laughs> I think Hysteria was the first album to be like over 60 minutes. Yeah. 60 minutes of fucking shit. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, uh, uh, well, wait a minute. Before I go into the next song, we got to hear from uh, Ronnie again. And Ronnie's going to tell us. Hold on. Uh, Ronnie is going to tell us. Did he ask Black Sabbath's drummer at the time to leave or did he just come with him? We'll see what Dio has to say. No, Vinny was unceremoniously booted out with me. I guess Vinny was tied to me in some ways. Uh, One, because he was my best friend in the band, probably. Two, because he was an American, perhaps. Uh, You know, I'm not claiming that there was that kind of, you know, uh, uh, ethnicity, that anti-ethnicity thing going on. It wasn't that at all. But because we were close, 
I think that uh, the camp became divided in some way, and they automatically assumed that, well, we've got to get rid of this guy, let's get rid of the other one as well. Uh, and, and he just happened to be, you know, unfortunately for him, or fortunately, I think I'd say more fortunately, he became part of, uh, of my journey away from Sabbath. Uh, I didn't have to beg him, I was happy as hell to have him. You know, I asked him if he would like to do it, and he said, yeah, let's do it. And you know, that kind of support is, is really incredible. You need that kind of security. When you go from being a part of a band, and that, secure, that security umbrella is mostly there for you. And as soon as you're not in that, you're, you know, you're, you're open to all the slings and arrows, and uh, it, it just becomes a very hard thing psychologically sometimes to deal with. But if you've got some support there, and Vinny was that support for me, uh, he, and so he stayed and we carried on from there and that's when we started to look for a guitar player actually um, not anything else but a guitar player we tried a couple people here in Los Angeles but uh, I, they just didn't suit I mean after having played with Tony and with Richie and you know heard the great ones everything else paled in comparison to me and I knew what I wanted I knew the kind of player I wanted and I really wanted an English player I said said that all the time anyway I mean I loved the way they played take chances, uh, th what they do on stage, just the attitude of the, of the British musician, to me, is just so far superior to, to the American musician. Uh, certainly at that time. Uh, if we talk, you know, musician against musician, sure, there are some great American guitar players and great English guitar players as well, but I just always liked the attitude. Um, and I think that, you know, Britain, because it was, uh, you know, didn't birth rock and roll, always felt a little bit, I think maybe a little bit, not inferior, but we've got something to prove. And that's another attitude I liked. It was like no holds barred, you know, here's what we're going to give to you, and they did. So that's when we went looking for a guitar player. All right, well now we'll go into the title track, Holy Diver, and holy fucking shit. Now, if you ask me, this is a spiritual successor to what he did in, in Sabbath. You know, to me, stand up and shout was like, okay wow you're taking it to another level this is something i could very much see tony iomi playing guitar on and i you know i could see uh you know working well within the sabbath canon but it, it's perfect like it is with this lineup but holy shit you know and, and i love that this was the first single they didn't go with rainbow in the dark this was the first single let's see where this lands it's everything metal is in this fucking song you can see the sabbath roots but you can see dio taking it to where he wanted to go favorite fucking track on the album i give it five out of five ruben de la rosas did you say fucking stand up and shout with your favorite fucking it, it's I a tie i really like this album <laughs> everything's the favorite <laughs> what do you what, what do you think well, yeah, dude, I totally agree with you. It sounds like an Iomi riff. And as I understand, this is all written by Dio. Completely written by Dio. And when, uh, and what a lot of people don't know is Jakey Lee was in Dio um, before he got Vivian Campbell. Right. And, you know, Jakey Lee said, you know, when he tried out for Dio, rehearsing, this was one of the songs. It was already written, even in that embryonic stage. But yeah, dude, I mean, god damn, so iconic that he even ended up on South Park. And the fucking lyrics, dude, ride the tiger, you can see his stripes, but he's always clean. Don't you know what I mean? No, I don't know what you mean. But I love you, Dio, and I love how you're <laughs> fucking making my brain twist with your fucking lyrics that are just like 
you know, it's like he's painting pictures with words. Even if they don't make sense, they sound so fucking cool. You know? Jump, jump, ride the tiger. I love that shit, dude. Don't you see what I mean? He's so fucking intelligent, man. What a, what a fucking shame, dude. That guy couldn't live till 80. At least 80. But, uh, my God. I mean, you can't get more classic than this. You know, this uh, is... And, you know, I mean, this is a song that... You play it around any metalhead, the horns go up. Right. Day, it never ages. You know? This is fucking unbelievably great. And then we go to Gypsy. I don't have... Well, well, hold, on. Well, hold on. Before you go into Gypsy, let's see what Dio has to say about is it true that Vinny and him went to London to seek out a guitarist? We did. We uh, Because, again, I, I, I was dissatisfied with what I found here. I didn't like the style of playing that, uh, that American guitar players were using at the time. They all wanted to be as fast as Eddie Van Halen, and that's not what I was looking for. I wanted someone who, if he had to be fast, could be fast, but had to have romance in his soul or beauty in his playing uh, you know plus expertise and you know be able to write not much to ask for but you know obviously those people are available so we went to to London uh, specifically to look for a guitar player uh, Vinny and I went and we spent uh, the first three or four days going around to clubs you know, Marquee uh, some of the other places in the West End and uh, we ended up at one time at a, at a reggae show. We didn't know who they were. We went in and, and everybody was a Rasta except us. And we went, nope, wrong place. Had a good pint in there though. Um, completely wrong place for us. So we just couldn't find anyone. Uh, no one who was good enough to to, to fill our needs. So um, after about three days of being depressed, uh, I said, you know, I'm going to give Jimmy a call, Jimmy Bain, because, of course, Jimmy had played with me in Rainbow, and I thought, who better to know guitar players than Jimmy? So the call was only to ask him if he knew guitar players. So luckily, he had just come home after doing a show, some shows with uh, with Phil and uh, in a band they put together called the Greedy Bastards. And it was, you know, just a fun band, and Jimmy was playing keyboards in it. So he had just come home. He had three days away from... Um, that particular tour that was going to begin again in three days and go to Scandinavia sometime. So Jimmy came home, came right over to the hotel with two tapes. One was Viv Campbell and one was uh, John Sykes. And although we, we liked, you know, John's playing was great as well, uh, there was just something special about what Viv did. There were things that he played that were like off the beaten track, like he'd suddenly uh, put a little Chuck Berry movement in and we went, wow, a thinking player. He thinks. he. He does other things. He doesn't just stay on the road. So we liked that very much about him. So uh, we had Jimmy call him. He was living in, in Ireland at the time. Had Jimmy call him, said, you want to come down and have, have a play? And he said, yeah. So we got a rehearsal room at John Henry's, uh, got some gear off John, uh, and Jimmy came down too with his bass. You know, we, we didn't ask, but Jimmy came down. And my only trepidation would be that would Vinny be happy playing with Jimmy? Because at the end of the day, I could have said, well, Jimmy's going to be the bass player and you're going to wear it, Vinny. But that's not the way it works. If the bass player and the drummer aren't doing the job together, then what is the sense of even having a band? So, okay, so Jimmy plugged in. Uh, I had written two songs. I'd written Holy Diver and Don't Talk to Strangers already. And we, I showed them both the songs. Uh, Vinny knew them because we had kind of rehearsed them ourselves here in, uh, in, our, in our home. And uh, we played them and they were magic, magic. I said, Wow, this is it. But let's give ourselves one more day. Okay, so we, we'll come back tomorrow. We came back, went back the next day, played a little bit more. And went, 
this is the one. Do you want to do it? And everyone went, yeah, okay, fine. That was it. Bang, done. Just like that. All right. So, uh, yeah, Gypsy. She was straight from hell, but you never can tell. My favorite part of this song is when he goes, oh, man, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he, in, after a line, he goes, ha! That shit is so badass. It's like Metal James Brown. It's so fucking awesome. And, yeah, probably the most ripping solo on here. And, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, stand up and shout, crushes you. Uh, and uh, Holy Diver just stomps on you, and this one goes back to crushing you. It's a fast-paced killer. Amazing metal song. Gypsy is the shit. What a great song. What do you think? Oh, my God. I do it. She was straight from hell, but you never could tell because you were blinded by the light. Oh, <laughs> doesn't that speak volumes? Uh, oh, my God. The Gypsy Queen. Holy shit. The way he sings this and delivers it is just fucking amazing. Favorite track on the album? Uh, Five Ruben De La Rosas. Yeah. This shit fucking rules. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, and you're really starting to, you know, at this point, you're starting to, there's a whole different feel here from what he's done before. And and you just see him, like, building upon a, a Rainbow and Sabbath, you know? And, and in some instances, you know, not to say that it's better, but it's just, it's, it's elevating, you know, his songwriting, his singing. Uh, he's just taking it somewhere else and to come out of the situation he did and deliver this I was like holy fuck you know I listened to uh, uh, a couple weeks ago I was like I'm like he was you know listen to some Rainbow and I was listening to some Joe Lynn uh, Turner era Rainbow which I do like you know miles above that Grand Bonnet bullshit but nowhere near Dio but I was listening to his first solo album he did when Blackmore went back to uh, to Purple. Holy fuck, is it horrible. I've you never went, heard it. Oh, my God. It, it sounds like third-rate John Wayne. I mean, oh, my like God. Like AOR stuff, right? Oh, oh yeah. It's so, it's so commercial. Uh, there's no, like, you know, no heaviness to it. It's like... Hey, let me, you know, it does. It sounds like John Waite, like I ain't missing you at all bullshit. You, you know? know, I just saw John Waite. He opened for Pat Benatar, and I've never been a fan of his, and it was an acoustic set, and I stuck around for a couple songs. I was like, all right, that's enough of this. Really? Because I, I just saw he just played a gig in uh, somewhere in Europe, and, and they said, oh, John Waite, or uh, John Waite, <laughs> there we go. Jolyn Turner throws out some rainbow classics, and I, I just checked it out to see how he sounded, and he did Stone Cold, and I thought it was phenomenal. No, no, I no, mean, I'm talking about John Waite. I didn't see Joel. Oh, oh, John Waite. Okay, John never Waite mind. opened for Pat Benatar. Okay. Yeah, he, yeah, he sucks. Yeah, he does. He su- I saw John Waite with, uh, what was that horrible band he was in with Neil Sean? Bad oh, English. Oh. Bad English. Oh my God. I never, I saw who would bad English open for somebody and I didn't go in during them. But I, I, 
I can't remember what it was, what band it was though. I, I, I saw bad English. It was uh it was called the World Series of Rock. And it was um Hurricane Alice, Bad English, Skid Row, Great White, and White Snake on the slip of the tongue tour. It might have been it might have been the White Snake slip of the tongue tour bad English open. It might have been that one. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember uh you know, me me and my best friend at the time went and his sister drove because we weren't old enough to drive. And we me and him slammed a six pack before the show and we were so fucked up. We passed out during Hurricane Alice and I woke up. I had lawn seats. I woke up during bad English and I'm like, oh, bad English. And I went back to sleep. <laughs> Fucking terrible. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Gypsy. Fucking amazing fucking track. But uh, let's go back to Dio and let's see what Dio has to say about. Were there any thoughts of continuing to work in London rather than return to Los Angeles? No, there wasn't at all. Um, you know, Los Angeles was uh, was my home and Vinny's home, uh, and certainly a whole lot less expensive to live in than London. Um, so it was easier to bring Jimmy and uh, and Viv here. Uh, Vivian had never been here, so he would be excited about it. Uh, Jimmy absolutely loved Los Angeles always, and uh, so it was no problem for Jimmy. So you know, we we brought the two of them over here. Then we started, you know, earnestly rehearsing and writing the songs, rest of the songs for Holy Diver. Um, Caught in the Middle is next, right? Yes. Best vocals on this album, in this song. The way he sings this song, it's just goosebump central, man. And it kind of musically sticks out. Kind of like Walk Away from Heaven and Hell, which is still a great song I love. Doesn't really, um, musically, it's a little more commercial. I wouldn't even say commercial, but a little less like you know bone crushing metal but the vocals on this song and then it elevates toward the end where he's like where it's fading out oh oh my god this song this song is a song that i've always loved but i love more now than i ever have because you know being a young metalhead you know I, i gravitated toward the more heavier songs but i still loved it is you know, I never ever ever would skip a song listening to this, even way back then. But yeah, I was like, yeah, okay, this is alright. But now listening to it, just the way he sings it, take a look at your just the way he croons this song, best metal singer ever, man, hands down. What do you think? What do I think? Love this song. Favorite track on the album. <laughs> Five Ruben De La Rosas. Uh, it, it definitely is more on the commercial side. Um, the, you know, this one, I, I, I think with Rainbow in the Dark, definitely, like, I could see these on, on radio. But it takes nothing away from the song. And you're absolutely right about the vocals. You know, and just when he says, you know, that caught in the middle, helpless again. You know the way he takes it. Damn, you sound just like him. No, I don't. But <laughs> uh, it's it's fucking amazing. And, and I mean, it, I I, th- I think what you're right is his vocals elevate the song 
even higher than you know than it should be. Like if anybody else, you know, you give them the same song, there's no way, you know, you know, you give the shit to Vince Neil. No, I'm sorry. No. I'm not sorry, actually. No. It just sucks. Dude, you give uh, anybody really. Yeah, yeah. But he he takes it to that place that's just like makes it a fucking classic. I mean Oh and and, and there's something about it that's you know, if, if you listen to the lyrics of the song, he's talking about people getting in trouble and and all this stuff. But it, it, it's such a... You hear his vocals, it's an uplifting song. You know, like, I don't feel sad about being caught in the middle. It's just like, okay, whatever. This is great. <laughs> you know, Dio's making me happy. It, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a happy Dio song. Even though lyrically it might not be. But, I mean, it's just... Mm. It, it's perfection. It's perfection. But now let's let's hear from Dio himself on. Uh, was there any thought of? Or I'm sorry. He left Sabbath in '82, and Holy Diver was released in '83. How did it come along so quickly? Let's see what Dio says. It, it, it was fast. I mean, it was it was only fast because we finally found the right players. The the lapse in time were was probably the you know three or four months when we were trying out a few players here in Los Angeles or when we were playing with ourselves because uh, when we first started I brought the songs in I played guitar we just got an amp and cranked it up as low as it would go of course so I could hide my mistakes and we played Holy Diver and Don't Talk to Strangers just Vinny and I uh, so we were prepared but again the important thing was that we found the right players so introducing them to those songs was an easy thing and they were so good at it, it was not a problem um, so it was only that lag time when needing to find those players. It w would have even taken less time had they been living around the corner. But yeah, it, it was quite quite immediate. All right. Well, now we go to the last song on side one. Don't talk to strangers. Ooh, holy shit! Now this is another one. Uh, one of three songs that I I, I could totally see Sabbath doing. Uh, definitely has the Sabbath feel. This is another one that was supposedly solo written by Dio. And, you know, for, from what I've, I've read and heard, this is really about, you know, getting kicked out of Sabbath. You know, and, you know, between getting kicked out of Sabbath, getting kicked out of Rainbow, you know, like, don't trust people, you know, you think they're, you know, your brothers, your friends and stuff like that, but everybody's out to fuck you, you know, and here you kind of get that, you know, Dio, I, as, as much as I love the song and I love Dio, I think you get a little bit of that little man syndrome, that paranoia, that, you know, fuck all these guys, but the way he puts it into lyrics and and into music is just flawless. I mean, I mean, this is one of the great. I would probably put in top three Dio songs, you know, Dio band era songs of all time. Don't talk to strangers. It's just fucking perfection. What do you think? Oh yeah, another one of his women are evil songs. You know, going back to Tear It Woman, Lady Evil, Country Girl. Um, Love it, man, and it's got that that build-up thing that you know, like Children of the Sea, Sign of the Southern Cross, starts kind of like mellow, and 
back in the day, this was my favorite. No, this was my favorite track. I know it's your favorite. <laughs> well, it, you know, I, I didn't mention it, but, you know, now that you say it, it would be my favorite song of the album. Five Ruben De La Rosa's love it's, song. It's ironic how you say five uh, Ruben De La Rosa since he is five foot tall. Yeah, well, well, you know, that's the one thing I love about Dio and Ruben De La Rosa. Not only do I look up to them, but they look up to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well yeah, I, I know when you looked at the, when you were passed out on the floor. Uh, <laughs> that's the only way you can look up to Ruben. You know, that's edited out. <laughs> hey, I love that guy. Uh, right on. Does Dio have something to say before we go to the next track? Yeah, all right. Now Dio is going to talk about, uh, was there any material on this album written while he was in Sabbath? I've never, ever written a song when I've been in a band that, that I would not give to that band that I was in. I've never written anything that I saved and said, no, I'm going to use that one for my solo album. Because, again, my attitude has never been to be a solo artist. It's only been to be one of the people in the band. That was my love. That's why I started to play music, because I, I liked... I liked music, of course, but I liked the camaraderie. I mean, it's something that I'm going to miss most of anything when, when I'm not doing this anymore, and that's being on the road, and it's you against the world. So again, I never wanted to be a solo artist. Never, never in a million years. Um, and to this day, I still don't feel that way. So I never, never wrote any songs that weren't presented to and used by the band that I was in. I wrote them because I had to. I wrote them when Sabbath was over, and that's when I decided you better get off your, your ass, pal, and start doing it. So I wrote those two songs. All right, so uh, side two starts with Straight to the Heart. What a fucking man. What, what And like I said about um, Stand Up and Shout, it's the perfect, perfect opening track. This is the perfect opening track for side two. It's got more of a grinding feel, but it's so fucking heavy. And... Uh, here it comes again, straight through the heart. What a riff. What a riff. Sabbathy as well. Um, just fucking, I don't know, man. I, I'm going I'm to sound like a broken record, but this is the shit. Absolutely love it. What do you think? What do I think? It's my favorite song on the fucking album. You're kidding. Five Ruben De La Roses. I mean, I mean, just the way it starts out, the... Uh, Hanging in the cobwebs in your mind. There's a long, long way to fall. I love oh. how he does it the second time when he yeah. holds Oh. Oh. No one ever told me life was kind. I guess I never heard, never heard at all. Oh. It, it's just, it's so fucking powerful. And crunching, yet you know, there, there's a sing-along ability about it too. Uh, I mean, holy, how? I, I mean, I'm, it, it was a different era, you know, where like you know you didn't have ten years to put out an album, or, you know, all you know all this time. You you know it was fuck or walk, you know. You had to put it out, but it's like, how do you write this many? solid songs you know i have no fucking idea and how is this not uh even more appreciated than it is 
You know, this was actually the second Dio album to go platinum. Last in Line went platinum before this one. This album, like a couple months ago, went double platinum for the first time. Oh, did it? Yeah, the Holy Diver went double platinum. I remember seeing it on, on online uh, recently. It's like, what? This long? That's insane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Last in Line went platinum, I think, a year after it came out. And this one went platinum in 96 but it, it's like how how was this not bigger but you know if, if you know you and i can relate if you go back to that time you didn't hear this on regular radio oh no no you uh, did you did you heard well you know because you weren't around 83 uh rainbow in the dark was all over the radio and there was even a Budweiser commercial. Yeah, yes, I remember. I remember the Budweiser commercial. Actually, I remember that before I knew the album. I knew the Budweiser commercial. Yeah, that, this this song. Well, I'm talking about South Florida. Heavy rotation right. on radio. Right. Well, you didn't in Chicago. You didn't hear it as much. Uh, you know, and you would see it on MTV, but not heavy rotation. You know, not like you'd see Duran Duran. Well, well, no metal video back then, but it was shown, I mean, compared to Holy Diver, that video was hardly shown. Rainbow in the Dark, it got enough, you know, I mean, enough for a metal one, you know. Right, right, but it's just like something this good. What a weird video. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I mean, they both were. I mean, you know, and it was funny at a time where it was all about how sexy you could be, (laughs) you know. Here's here's little Dio dressed like a satanic fucking Keebler elf. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Getting a close up of those choppers that looked like he was from England. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. But but here it comes again. Straight through the heart. Alright, well let's go back to Dio and see what he has to say about was there an overall concept for lyrics and visuals? No. No, no, never had any of those kind of aspirations in the beginning uh, and no formula for a concept for the album. It was only going to be what the musicians had to offer and that's exactly what it became. When we started writing together, it was like we always used to do. Got any ideas? How about, here's a riff. Oh, that's good. Oh, let's work on that. And then we did it the way I've always done it, which is we don't start with one little, oh, that's a good riff. You got any more? Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, let's jump from that one to that one. No, to me, it's a matter of you start a project, you finish it, then go on to the next one. And each song is a project for me. So that's what we did. Great riff. Let's write that song. And we did. Makes you feel better about yourself, too, when you've got something in your pocket that always works, you know, that you know is going to work. Then you go on to the next one. So that became the formula for writing. Uh, But again, it was not a matter of uh, we need a song like this. What we did know was it when there was a song or a riff or something presented, we knew that it wasn't right for us, so we wouldn't do it. But we would choose the things that we knew would go in the right direction. Uh, lyrically, I just wrote you know, what I wanted to write. Uh, again, was not uh, in any way, shape, or form beholden to anyone about what I wanted to say. No one could tell me what I wanted to say, and that, that was a joy for me. Uh, but I didn't want to go over the edge with it. But because I had been known for being much kind of more that fantasy element in in my writing it certainly made a lot of sense for me to stay with that uh let's now really go for this what will be that what became the concept and then we worked at it after that i think but the first one was just what it was visually it was only a matter of okay we're going to go out on the road now 
What should we do? Hey, let's build a big stage set and go for it. Okay. And we did. Um, you know, mortgage the house for that one. But that's what we wanted to do. Uh, it was important for me to have this band put into a light that was going to be a bit more special than just another band. And I thought that band, this band deserved it. So that also came after the fact. The band developed and its visuals developed after the writing process went by, after we knew we had something concrete that, that was going to be really good. All right, well, now we'll go to the next track. You could be, 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 be invisible. Holy shit. Another one. It, it just, it doesn't stop. Invisible, I don't know, I'm not talking about a class here, happens to be my favorite track on the fucking album. <laughs> Five Ruben De La Rosa's. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Go away. I can't leave here. I can't be, 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 be. Oh. Um, amazing. I, I mean, you keep waiting for it. For now, you know, okay, this is going to be the throwaway track. There is no fucking throwaway track. Uh, invisible. It's, oh, I... I mean, seriously, because I, I started thinking about like 83. It was a incredible year for fucking metal. I mean, not only the albums that we already mentioned already, but think about peace of mind, and, you know, metal health. I mean, well, yeah, metal health is probably at the bottom, but still, <laughs> you know, I but mean, the, but probably the most important. Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely the most important. It may not be musically the best, but it is right. metal health is a Extremely important to metal. Oh yeah, oh sale wise and what it did for the genre. Fuck yeah, yeah. Oh, but hitting number one, all the record companies were like, "We need to, we need to cash in on this metal thing." Right, but you know, Metal Health had Thunderbird on it. <laughs> you know, there, there's no song. Oh god, you know it also had Slick Black Cadillac. You know, none of that shit out here. <laughs> you know. Here you get fucking invisible. Oh my oh, god. He, there was Breathless, man. That song rolls. Oh. He was just 18 and in between a lady and a man. That, the way he <laughs> says lady is so cool. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. Great fucking track. What do you think? She was a photograph just ripped in half a smile inside a frown. How badass is that? Again, do you know what I mean? No, but it's awesome. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this is this would probably be my like my third. Fit. My God, what a song! And and just the beginning of it, how I don't know, uh, like kind of mystical with that. If your circle stays unbroken, then oh. you're a lucky man, cause it never, never, never has for me. What a golden voice, man. And do, do you remember on the album that was written in the liner notes? Oh, wow. Uh, I don't remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you opened up, that was like the... Only lyric? Uh, well, no, it wasn't the only lyric, but like before the credits, you know, that was kind of written in like calligraphy and shit, you know, English calligraphy. And, uh, oh, I love that. And I always think about that, you know... And, and the way it starts out so majestic with the if, if your circle has been unbroken. Oh. Mm. You know, at that time, too, uh, I don't know if he did it during the Sabbath time, 
But I remember, uh, you know, I don't remember if they st kept doing it on Sacred Heart. They probably did. But if you were in the fan club, you'd get the lyrics of the whole album because Dio didn't put lyrics in albums. And yeah. you join a fan club and they'll send you like all the lyrics, all the songs. But you know what? Do you really need it? The way this guy enunciates, you can tell his every syllable this guy says. It's, yeah, he, he yeah. wasn't a mumble rapper. <laughs> <laughs> or Vince Neil. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can, you know, remember that song, Fight for Your Rights? I mean, fight, it, fight, yeah. fight for your rights. No, no, no. It's fight for your rights. It's like, why does Vince go fool your rights? <laughs> if, 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 if that song wasn't called fight for your rights, you'd feel it. You'd think it was called fight fools your rights. <laughs> <You know? laughs> fight well, fools your rights. <laughs> he was too cheap to mail to the Motley Crue fan club to get the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, dude, Invisible. Oh, you can be, 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 be Invisible. Fuck yeah, dude. And and another, well, I didn't see the Holy Diver tour, so I don't know if they played it on that, but I never seen them play it, and I know you were too drunk to realize this, but he brought it back on the Magicka tour. And I was like, oh, man. So I did get to see him do this song once. Oh. Know? Many years later, he also did One Night in the City on the Magic of Tour with, and Sunset Superman. Sunset what? Superman was never played live, at well, least like when I saw him. The fucked up thing is, I remember One Night in the City, and I remember uh, uh, Sunset Superman because that's my favorite track on, on Dream Evil. He opened but, with that actually, but I don't remember Invisible. Yeah, and you're right, I was very drunk at the time. Yeah. Oh, and I, I remember I was I was so pissed off because I was very broke at the time I went. Me and my friend Skip went. My friend Skip was very wealthy, and they were selling uh, a last in line long sleeve, and I was so jealous because you know I, I couldn't even afford to buy it. It was like either buy a shirt or buy some more beer, and, and I ended up buying more beer. But he got this incredible. Are you sure it wasn't? Are you sure it wasn't Holy Diver? Because I bought a Holy Diver long sleeve at the mat. It said Magic on the sleeves, but I yeah. said that's the shirt I'm wearing when I'm with my arm around Dio and we're both doing the horns. Yeah, no, he had one like that, but it was last in line. Okay, probably I was like, oh, I'm going with the Holy Diver. I love yeah. last in line. I love the cover, but now the the cover and album of Holy Diver, like right. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it totally trumps fucking Last in Line because Last in Line has mystery on it. That song sucks. Oh, horrible song. I didn't <laughs> like. I didn't like Breathless or Eat Your Heart Out either. Love the rest. I don't. I, I don't. At night. I I don't mind Breathless. Yeah. You know, it's 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 you know. Yeah, it's not horrible, but I don't yeah. know. I find it to be kind of filler. But man, but mi mystery. Oh, mystery's the worst. Yeah. But mystery is that him trying to recreate Rainbow in the Dark again and feel yeah. miserable at it. And what's funny, you know, and, and Rainbow in the Dark is a song he hated. Yeah. And he tried to recreate it. He actually, he they actually fought him because he literally was going to cut up the tape with a knife, uh, a blade, right. and they stopped him. And he's like, thanks, guys. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll hear him talk about that later. But right now, let's hear Dio talk about you produce the album this yourself. Was this because 
you wanted to take control or was it simply impossible to find someone else? No, I wanted to do it myself and not because of the control so much. It wasn't a matter of that. I think I felt that after all the years that I put in in the studio and all the great people that I've worked with, the great engineers that I worked with, I learned so much from them, from Martin Birch especially. I, mean, I learned his methods and I, uh, Roger Glover, who I worked with for so long, uh, I learned from these people and I felt that I was prepared to do that. I mean, to me, Production was not having to have, have my hands on the knob. That's the engineer's job. So I always felt if you've got a great engineer, then your ears will do the rest of it. And I felt that nobody's ears were going to be any better for the band called Dio than mine. Uh, so I did that, and not out of ego, but because, you know, I just felt that it was time for me to do that. And then after doing the first one, it worked, and I wasn't about to relinquish that hold until, of course, time goes by, and, and if, if you flag a little bit in your success from a record company always will come the well let's get so-and-so as a producer he did a great job for you know and whenever that did happen uh i did one project uh with uh, uh lock up the wolves uh, and uh strange highways with two producers supposed to be producers who were i guess in their own way but it eventually ended up being my production because what happens is that when when these songs any song that we write we always pre-produce we always record them first and we always put in the parts that are needed if there's a keyboard part needed it's constructed it's put into that track it's put it in at the right place it's put in at the right level so when we present this in the studio to the engineer or to the so-called producer there's the song. All you've got to do, mate, is capture the sounds. It's all you've got to do. It's arranged and, and just virtually produced, and it's been that way with every album we've done. So preparation has always been uh, a reason for not really having to have a producer to do it because he's only going to end up doing it my way anyway because I'm <laughs> going to say at the end of the day, no, I don't like that. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like us. But, you know, I'm not that uh, stolid about it that I'm going to say, oh, no, you know, I mean, I'll listen, of course, but, you know, there are parameters that, that have to work for me and if they don't then if you go outside of that parameter then nope sorry so again easier for me to deal with um plus it's easier for the musicians a lot of times too i guess at times it might be harder maybe it's harder you know i mean being as uh, yeah we could ask him couldn't we um you know being as as adamant as i am about what i want to hear maybe it is harder for them maybe they'd, they'd fly a little bit more if it if, it, if there was someone else giving them that freedom but you know until that until the band's name changes from Dio, then it's not going to happen all right well ralph why don't you take the next one the the huge song the biggest song from dio's catalog not necessarily the best but it goes without saying it's the biggest rainbow in the dark fucking love it man and like i said earlier i was so proud when this was all over the radio at the time and people were going nuts over it this was a bona fide hit you know, I don't know how I got on the charts, but as far as radio play, this shit was all over the radio back then. Uh, what what month was this released? Do you, do you have that handy there with you? Uh, this was released May 25th, 1983. Yeah. yeah, May, April, May, June. You know, it was like, it was all over the radio for, you know, the summer of 83. Uh, this had legs, man. I'm telling you, this was played for years on the radio. Especially when it first came out. It was a lot of rotation on this shit as far as radio goes. And I just think it's a beautifully constructed song that Jimmy Bain, all fucked up with a, with a cigarette in his mouth, walks up to a little keyboard while they're listening back to the song. And, they, and he started going, boop, 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 
And that's what Dio hated about it. You know, he hated that shit, but they talked him into putting it on, but then he wanted to destroy, literally wanted to destroy the tape. He hated it so much. Yeah. But now he loved it. He was like, dude, he got him a mansion. You know, this is like, this, uh, this is an epic song. The biggest, probably the biggest deal. No, definitely the biggest deal hit of his whole career. This oh, definitely. His, yeah, his most popular song. You know, and again, when there's lightning, you know, it always brings me down because it's free and it's see that it's me. It's lost and never found. I cry out for magic. Dude, come on. And him on that rooftop with that weird-ass video, I love it. Fucking great. What do you think? What do I think? It's my favorite song on the fucking album. It is? By Ruben De La Rosas. Uh, I, I love this, and I love how it walks the line of awesomeness, yet commercial. You know? Uh, there's a reason it's a fucking hit. There's a reason why I originally knew this from the Budweiser commercial. And, uh, God, I, w- I wish there's some way, like, maybe we can find it. You could throw it in the Budweiser commercial. Yeah, I could do that. Because it, it was awesome and it was catchy. And uh, I just absolutely love it. Dio talk about this after, after we talk about the song. But it, this was originally something that uh, Vivian brought to the band. That uh, he had written uh, and he called it Jug of Wine or Bottle of Wine. <laughs> and it got changed into Rainbow in the Dark. Uh, it's It's... Perfect, and this is one of those. Anytime you hear it live, you didn't care how many times you heard it. I never had the burnout factor with this that I had with something like you know, rock and roll all night or shook me all night long. You, you know, it, it's it's always a welcome listen. Um, and 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 I don't know. It, it's I find it so weird that. In a way that Dio, you know, is, you know, somebody who's so like, you know, stuck to his guns yet is so eclectic, could write something this commercial, uh, you know, and that's what he hated about it because, you know, you know, the whole thing with him leaving Rainbow is, is you know, Richie wanted to go, Richie wanted to be foreigner, and he did it with that horrible Down to Fucking Earth album, and Dio wanted nothing to do with that, and when he heard this. You know, to him, it's like, oh, I'm doing what fucking Richie did, you know, with, with, uh, you know, down to earth. And he, and he didn't want to do it. But 
you know, luckily, Cooler Heads prevailed and the song made it on the album, and it's his, it's his signature song. I would think, you know, it's I would think it's between this Heaven and Hell and Man on the Silver Mountain for like signature um, Dio songs, and it's just it's it's a fucking masterpiece. But you know, you you and me have been talking a lot about you know what these songs mean. Fuck it. Let's go to let's go to the man himself, Ronnie James Dio. This is gonna be a long break here, but Ronnie James Dio is gonna break down what the tracks themselves meant to him and what they're about. Not the most amazing thing, but a, a strange coincidence is that the very first track on this album, Stand Up and Shout, was the last track written. And that track was written only as the backing track. Um, at that particular point, uh, Jimmy was going to um, Germany to do an album with Scorpions. And so Jimmy left to do that, and we, we, there was no time for him to stay around and listen to the backing track, or to the, to the vocal track, because it hadn't been written yet, because he had to go. And Vivian left as well, because he had done all of his parts as well. Uh, so they, they both went away, and uh, then I went into the studio and wrote the, rest, wrote the song, the, lyrically and melodically, and uh, recorded it sent it to Viv and Jimmy, and they went, wow, this is great, wow, brilliant, well, good, I did my job then. So it was, that's the only song that was done a little bit more disjointedly than the others, because they weren't there when I, when I did it. And I always liked, and certainly in those days, to have Jimmy at the desk when I sang, when I went out into the studio. I mean, your producer's hat can, is still on, but it's a bit tilted because you're doing some other job. You're not thinking in both those terms. I'm thinking now as a singer. So I would rely a lot on Jimmy. What was that like? Great, mate. Well, nah, yeah, that other part was fine. So it was almost like having a, a little, you know, assistant producer to do that for me. So uh, uh, in that particular case, Jimmy wasn't there. It didn't matter, you know. He did it anyway. But again, it was the track done, written last, and put first on the album. Um, Holy Diver, as we've talked about before, I wrote myself. Uh, just felt that uh, a song of that kind was needed to really be the basis of what this album was going to be. Uh, I felt that uh, a song a little bit more grandiose, much like uh, Stargazer that we had done before, of course, with Rainbow, or um, Heaven and Hell with Sabbath, or, or whatever the tracks may be. Those were always, the, they, they were and still are the, the kind of songs that I really like. And I think it represents certainly the kind of lyrics that I've always written a bit better. I think they fit a little bit better inside of that, that scope. Um, so I wrote the song because I thought it would, much like having Vinny with me, it gave me some security. I had a song already there that I knew was going to work. So, you know, that song again presented to the band and they just did, you know, such wonderful things with anything that I wrote. They, they just made them all come alive and that really was their job. Um, so that was Holy Diver. Holy Diver, um, you know, we took a lot of chances in this album. We did, I, maybe not chances, what we actually did was... We did a lot of things that nobody else had done before because we didn't know any better. Uh, drums, for example. We uh, put the drums with uh, Vinny's back to the, uh, to the uh, studio window. And we built around him, out of sheets, four by eight sheets of plywood, a room. And we mic'd the inside of that place that we captured for him. And that's why you hear this drum sound. And we did it on the second album as well, on Last in Line, too, because it worked for us. Uh, it, 
so live, made the drums so alive, just like the rest of the tracks were. But that's one of the, the things that we did throughout this album. We set, had the drums set up that way. So we hardly ever saw Vinny. He was always boxed away somewhere. Uh, so, you know, that was Holy Diver. Um, uh, Gypsy, just wanted to do something that was, you know, uh, just a little bit more feelful, perhaps, a little bit more stones-ish perhaps a little bit I think maybe that was my my thought that it was sound a little more like a stones kind of song to me and I wanted to do something like that so that there would be this difference between the songs after all Holy Diver is now this big production and uh you know Gypsy's a little bit more shouted and again more more feelful feelful so I wanted wanted that particular song to be on this album as well uh I'm trying to think if anything weird happened during the making of, of that particular track but no nothing did um we recorded all these, uh, this product at a, at a uh, studio called Sound City, which we had never used before. We actually rehearsed right across from the studio where they have the rehearsal halls. Uh, the, this was in the old days when the rehearsal halls were very, very small. They've since uh, done a really nice job of it, in there, but they were very small, and we played very loudly, and it was uh, hurtful at some times. We'd have to have put uh, Angelo Arcuri was our, our engineer on uh, this album and uh, th four of the, uh, the next, three of the next ones. And um, he would go out with a little Tascam um, cassette four-track recorder and try to get away from all the noise coming through the door so he could actually hear was what, was, what was going on. But in some you know, weird way, we, we made it all work. Uh, so anyway, back to Sound City. Put the guitars off in a room somewhere that nobody had ever found before, miles away. Uh, don't know why, but it made sense to us. Put another couple more. That's what I mean. We didn't know what we were doing. We... Uh, uh, put the bass off in a corner somewhere, sounded good to us. Like I said, we made uh, a room for the drums, Pfft, sounded good to me. So we did what, what sounded best to us. Angelo, our engineer, had never engineered a project, project like this before. Well, I'd never produced one either. So here we were, two babes in the woods. And uh, Angelo just did a wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, and I think we were a really good team doing it. And Angelo, of course, was our live mixer as well, which is a job that uh, not many people take on. Uh, most engineers will be very worried about their ears. Uh, but Angelo came from, you know, the same school as I did. Hey, live, let's do it. Eh, we can do it in the studio, no problem, but let's go out and do this live. So it, it was a nice nice marriage, I think, between uh, uh, Angelo and myself and, and Angelo and the rest of the band because we were all very close. We became, again, this team that I had mentioned before. Uh, so that was Gypsy. Uh, Caught in the Middle was a song that I wrote actually about Angelo. Angelo's life always seemed to be that of, of one caught in the middle of some kind of turmoil. He would always make decisions that were wrong, and uh, he would always come to me and go, Ron, what am I going to do? I said, oh, what's happened, Angelo? Caught in the middle, are you? Yes. Oh, wow, what a great title that is. That became Caught in the Middle, and the song was actually written about Angelo. <laughs> um, uh, Don't Talk to Strangers, again, that was the second song that I, I had written on my own before finding the band that we were going to use. Um, Wanted something, you know, up-tempo. Um, it, it just became, that song just became a product of my guitar playing. I mean, that's what it was. You know, not the world's greatest guitar player, but um, I, I think a lot of the things that I've written, um, riffs and songs that I've written on my own, have been more acceptable because I play like every man. I don't play like uh, Richie. I don't play like Tony. I don't play like Craig. I don't play like all these, you know, guitar players that know how to do it. So what I play... Um, anybody can pick up and do. And that's always appealed to me. I mean, because I think that's music is for the masses. I don't want to be Joe Satriani. 
you know, I, I'm, all I want to do is write a good song. But I think that because my method is that of everyone, that I, I think it, it made all things a lot more approachable. Uh, so the next song on the album, uh, Straight Through the Heart, uh, there are some of these songs on this album that, that I think reflect my own trauma at the time as well. I mean, as a writer, I think you're always going to draw upon what's happened to you. I mean, I've, uh, either good or bad experiences, that's where it comes from. And during the making of this album, you know, I, I had some personal things that were going on that were that bothered me quite a bit. And I think a lot, some of the songs that are on this album, you know, reflect that, uh, one of them being Straight Through the Heart. Uh, and the song itself, you know, is, here it comes again, straight through the heart, you know, and there's no worse pain on the face of the planet when you're in love with someone or, or th that kind of a thing. So, I mean, I just use that as an example of, you know, something, you know, very hurtful. Uh, so, but I think, you know, again, they, they reflect some of my feelings uh, at the time. Invisible, I, I just love the idea of, of, of what we were going to do to the song. Um, I, I thought it was a clever title. Uh, it was written about uh, three different people. Uh, a gay man, a gay young, young man, um, uh, an abused girl, and me. Uh, it was a triumvirate for you. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I wanted to write these songs from the standpoint of the person of someone who had been injured more, you know, psych psychologically and trauma that way, uh, and that happened in the case of the of the the young girl, uh, in the the gay boy. They were always being uh, put upon and kicked and shoved around for not being what people expect them to be, um, and then included myself in the last part of it, only because you know I've spent all my life on a stage, and a lot of trauma involved and a lot of that stuff too. I thought I deserved to be in that. Uh, because of what most musicians have had to go through in their lives. But the whole answer to it was, you know, you can just become invisible. You can escape those kind of things because you have a mind that will let you do that. And I don't mean escape them forever, but, you know, when people do that to you, why do you want to stand there and have the arrows and the stones being thrown at you? Hey, I'll just become invisible. you never see me. So I, I really, really liked what the attitude of the song was. Uh, again, played really well just really, really well. Everything on this album was played so well by the by Jimmy and Viv and, uh, and uh, Vin. Any keyboard parts that were there, Jimmy and I did, and you know, we were very simple players as well, and that's another reason why it worked. But that was invisible. Um, we have uh, Rainbow in the Dark. Uh, you know, it's a song that I really disliked. And when it was finished, I announced to everyone that I was going to take a razor blade and just cut the tape up. And so I went for the razor blade and I went, no, no, don't, don't, don't. I said, well, I don't like it. It's too poppy for me. To me, for me, it was too poppy for this album. I didn't want to create a piece of pop because it came from a different space. It came from Black Sabbath already. You know, a band that allowed me to do anything that I wanted to, as dark as I wanted to do it. Uh, so I didn't want those people who had liked what I'd done in Black Sabbath to say, oh, here he goes, now he's changed, hasn't he? Now he's become a pop, pop artist. I didn't want that to happen. And to me, because of, and, and only because the rest of the songs weren't quite as poppy as that. This one really stood out as being a, a, a pop kind of thing. And the riff was poppy, and the, the little keyboardy thing was poppy. But at the end of the day, it worked. So they talked me out of it, and I didn't do that. And I thank them over and over and over again for doing it, which doesn't mean that it's my favorite song still. I mean, I still will always have that feeling of that song, that it was too poppy for me. Luckily, the bands that have played that song now 
have all gotten the idea that it needs to be a lot heavier. So it is. So it works. But again, I'm very glad that they, they talked me out of that. But I, I disliked it so much that I really wanted to destroy the, the thing. Uh, and I believe in the beginning, that song, that was, uh, that was Viv's riff, and uh, that uh, it was originally called by Viv, I think it was called A Bottle of Wine. Uh, well, at least we got a better title out of it than, than that. Uh, but that was Rainbow in the Dark. Um, and the last song, Shame on the Night, I think, again, is probably a reflection of how I felt at the time. Nighttime is the worst time on earth to, to have problems. Everything during the day seems like it, you know, life is going to be okay, but as soon as it gets dark and dreary and the oppression falls on your shoulders, you start thinking too much. There's not, not much you can do at 4 o'clock in the morning, but think. 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I can go out for a ride or take a walk or whatever, but 4 o'clock in the morning, I don't think most people should be out at that time. You usually get in trouble doing that. Uh, so, you know, I think I equated the night at that time with, you know, having bad dreams and bad things going on. Uh, and it was, again, I thought a clever title, uh, personalizing the night and saying shame on you. Um, and, you know, riff-wise, it worked as well. So, I mean, so much of this works. Uh, I mean, if I'm not giving enough credit to the other people in the band, you know, please forgive me because this was a total package that we put together. This was four of us and not Ronnie. Uh, whatever accolades I've gotten from it are probably because I've carried on with this band and because I have, have a long history of doing things. But they were so, they did such a great job. Um, you know, I never want to diminish anything that uh, either Viv, Viv, Jimmy, or Vinny did on this. So uh, if I'm talking in terms of only myself, it's only because I'm, I'm the one who's talking, and I don't mean to. So, you know, kudos to them forever and ever. Uh, and that was, so that was the last track. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a joy to make. The album was a joy to make. I learned so much, not only about recording, but I learned so much about myself. I learned a little, to be a little bit more patient, to deal with people a little bit better than I had before. Um, I think now I've, I'm falling back into the other trap, and I'm, I'm worse to people now. But, you know, that happens when you get a bit, a bit older and, and set in your way, more set in your ways. But, again, it was a great learning experience for me, and it was uh, so fulfilling, especially the fact that that album was... A, success right off the bat and we had a record company it was Warner Brothers uh, who uh, um, not until a month into the making the making of this album even knew anything about it I guess uh, or at least um, no one no one whispered it to them I guess so about a month into the making of the album well it's going very well and we had already written Rainbow in the Dark uh, with the razor blade thread of course uh, we had contact from our from our record company and uh, they said, uh, so you're, you're making an album? Yes, uh, per our deal, because what had happened was I, they had signed me to a solo deal when I was in Sabbath. We were signed to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers said, we don't want to lose this kid, so we want to sign you to a solo deal. So they and uh, Polydor, or Phonogram at the time, both signed me to a solo career. So when my time was up in Sabbath, I had an album deal all ready to go, which was, you know, wonderful for me. So we started the project, and then we were called in my Warner Brothers and said, uh, we need to have a meeting with you. And I had a meeting with uh, Ted Templeman. Ted was head of A&R, and uh, the meeting was at 10 o'clock in the morning. We didn't get out of the studio until about 4 o'clock in the morning, so I, Wendy and I went uh, to Warner Brothers and dragged ourselves in, got there at 10 o'clock, and waited about a half an hour in Ted's office. He came staggering through the door, and he went, what are you doing here so early, Ronnie? I said, well, you're the one who called the meeting. He said, no, I didn't. He said, what's this all about? I said, well, I'm assuming it's about the fact that we're doing an album and 
you don't seem to know about it. I said, so what's the story? He said, who's producing it? I said, I am. He said, get out of here and go finish it. So we did. So we went, and then we started getting some visits from people from the company. We come down and want to hear what was going on down here. So we played them a couple tracks, and one of them, of course, happened to be Rainbow in the Dark, and that was the end for them. They went, that's, wow, these are our boys. And even with that, uh, you know, the, what they liked about it, uh, at the end of the day when it was released, they still weren't, you know, uh, touting it as one of their greatest products to be released, and you must hear this. It really was like Heaven and Hell album uh, in that people made it successful. Uh, people, uh, some bands would play it during their breaks um, uh, or after their show, people coming in and out, and people go, what's that? And it became such a word-of-mouth thing the same way Heaven and Hell did. People would hear it at a show. Bands would hear the album and go, wow, what a great band. They would turn other people onto it. And suddenly it became this instant hit uh, that just stunned the record company, apparently. And uh, then they started working a bit harder. Uh, but that really is the story of that album from its beginning until its, its success. And its success was, as I said before, certainly you know, mostly due to the people who played on it and then secondarily, of course, to the great, great fans who supported me all these years and the ones who were, who were turned on to this band and this album and made Dio what it's become. All right, well, Ralph, why don't you take on the last song on the album, Shame on the Night. This is the greatest Dio song from the Dio band, hands down. This song is just flat out amazing. Never wrote a better song than this since. Shame on the Night is just, my God, just the, the beginning with the, with the wolf howling and that little mysterious little riff and the little keyboard, the, the like freaky keyboard, and then it just goes into the heavy Sabbathy riff. And the way he sings this shit with it, just him and fucking Jimmy Bain, man, holding down that beat. Boom, boom. And his just, just the way he delivers this song is like this. I would have to put up as like one of the greatest, not only one of the greatest songs, but one of the greatest. Uh, even though I will say, you know, I think uh, Caught in the Middle has more powerful vocals than this. But this is like almost neck and neck. You know, it's right up there, man. It's like incredible singing. I love Vinny's drum work on this. And he's the way he just pounds the drums and it's straightforward. Not complicated, but right fucking to the jugular. And man, and then just take it to another level as it fades out with the monk type fucking chanting. Oh, then he does that little, like, you know, just to piss off the preachers. Oh, what did he say there? You know, it's like, you know it sounds evil as fuck, whatever he says. Kind of sounds I, think like he's, I think he said, I want to fuck Minnie Driver. <laughs> yeah. she wasn't. Was she born yet? <laughs> anyway. she, was, she wasn't of age. Yeah. <laughs> what is he, Gene Simmons now? <laughs> Ted Nugent? Yeah, she was taller than him at the time, though. So. Uh, yeah, a taller toddler. <laughs> what a song, dude! My favorite track off this album. Ten out of ten, Ruben De La Rosa's "Shame on the Night" is my favorite Dio song from the Dio band, hands down. And I never, I not always thought that. Actually, it was kind of recent. Actually, you know, walking around with my iPod, a shuffle, and that song came on. 
And I, re- dude, seriously, I came back home and plugged it into the stereo and had to listen to that shit blasting. You know, it's just such a fucking that day. I swear, I'm not lying to you. I, I think I listened to Shame on the Night over and over again for like five, six times in a row. And then when I took a shower, I put it on again. You know, it's like this song is just the shit. Love it. Favorite song. What do you think? <laughs> well, that's you know, this fucking irks me <laughs> because. God damn it, this is my favorite song on the album. What? Five out of five Ruben De La Rosa's. God damn, do I love this fucking song. And I, I love that. Down, 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 down. Down, 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 down. And, and my, fav, my favorite verse is, is, is the third verse where he's like, Shame on the sun. For the light you sold, I lost my hold on the magic flame. But now, but now I know your name. Oh no! Oh, you came again! You came again! Fuck oh my god! Oh, is that so good? And this is the other one that I was talking about. The three that like, oh my god, this is so Sabbath. You know, I could totally see you know Sabbath doing this. But at that same time, I I don't want to take away anything from what fucking Vivian did here because it's just fucking amazing I mean his guitar work on this album I, I mean is as much as Dio should be held in esteem for this album so should Vivian Campbell and it's just just like what a fucking waste that this guy went from this to White Snake to fucking Death Leopard River Dogs was no picnic either. Yeah, that's the shit he did with Lou Graham, right? No, no, that was another one. River Dogs was some band he did himself, and it was terrible. I bought it too. I was like, "Fuck!" Oh man, I can't remember Lou Graham. I know uh, Shadow King. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! But this Vivian was so fucking talented and so good and. I, I I don't know how you could go from this to that. Well, he <laughs> you know? himself a little bit on that first Last in Line album is awesome. Second one's, ugh. but the first yeah. first one's very DOS. And I got to tell you, man, I've been to a billion shows. Top ten show was when I saw Last in Line at the Miami Casino, which unfortunately was Jimmy Bain's last show. He died two days later in uh in the Def Leppard cruise. The guy had lung cancer and nobody knew it. Yeah. I don't think he knew it either, actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's sad. And, it's yeah. weird, too, because even if you look at the footage, because there is footage online, like Glass of Line and Magic Casino, dude, we all were looking at him going, man, he doesn't look good. I mean, he looks yeah. bad. You know, and, you know, and, you know two days later, he'd be dead. And, you know, and let that be a lesson to our listeners, you know, please. You know, go and get checked out because, yeah. both, you know, yeah. Jimmy Jimmy Bain and Ronnie James Dio, you know, they say if these guys would have went to their doctors and would have got, you know, did, did regular physicals and stuff that, you know, this stuff could have been stopped, you know, could have been prevented. I mean, everybody's going to fucking die, <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong, but, you know, in some cases you can pick and choose, you know, and... You know, you could have a few more years and 
God, wouldn't it have been great to have a few more years out of Jimmy Bain and Ronnie James Dio? Yeah. You know, and, and and when he passed, it was such like a, oh my God, you know, it was, you know, and, you know, he passed before Lemmy. But when, when Dio died, man, it really affected me. That's why I ran out and got the tattoo without a second thought. You know, I'm just like, Fuck. this guy you know you know I think back to 86 you know when I got into metal you know when you know <laughs> I heard tears are falling and I'm like yeah this is me uh, but you know he was right there in that year that I discovered Maiden you know and, and you know Dio and Kiss and all this other great shit you know and decided this this is going to be my music for life you know <laughs> always a joke i hate metal but since 1986 you know it's been metal you know and and dio was just such a huge part of that and then going back and you know discovering his past and then sticking with him through everything he did you know i still went out and bought every fucking dio album you know uh I remember going in the record store when Strange Highways came out. And this is pre-internet. I had no idea Strange Highways was even coming out. But I walked in there to buy something else. And I'm like, I'm leaving with Dio. It's, it's, a, it's a Dio album. And I loved it. You know? Great album. You know, and, and then, you know, I, luck, I was lucky enough to see him three times. And, you know, on one hand, it's like, fuck, I only saw him three times. And... But on the other hand, it's like, you know, I saw him three times more than a lot of other people got to see. So be thankful for what you have. And and I got to see Dio in a fucking club. I saw Dio in a fucking house of blues. How sad is that? But at the same time, you know, I was two rows back for Dio on the Magica tour. So, you know. Yeah, I just did the math now. I saw him exactly ten times. Awesome. Yeah. And when I awesome. saw Magic Tour, it was uh, it was this place called uh, what was the name? Ovation, I think. Yeah, Ovation. That used to be a Win Dixie. Well, do you have, do they have Win Dixies up there? Uh, yeah, in Florida. Well, actually, they have them in Louisiana too. But yeah, I know Win Dixie. It's like the white trash Publix. Yeah, it, it, it's but it's kind of you know it's kind of big, but it was still yeah it still had the same shape. You know, Win Dixie all has the same shape. Right, the shape it has, and it was a. Uh, it used to be a Win Dixie, and it was with Ant. Uh, well, no, 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 that, that was a different show. Master of the Moon, I saw in a club as well, and that was with Anthrax. And I'll never forget, man. Scott Ian goes, "Here's the first song off the first album." I was like, "No way!" They're doing my favorite Anthrax song, Death Rider. But holy crap, they did that other version, that bouncy version. It starts off like Death Rider, and then it goes into boink, boink, boink. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck is this shit? That was blasphemy. But Dio, that was the night I saw Dio do the, the best set list, man. Stargazer, Sign of the Southern Cross, Gates of Babylon, dude. All these fucking songs he threw out on that set list. Amazing. Yeah, I, will, I would love to go back and look up uh, see if I can find the set list for the Magica show that I saw, because I, I was I was I was inebriated, surprise surprise. But I was just so happy to see 
Dio, you know? And I hadn't seen him since the Dehumanizer tour. And and how lucky I was, you know, to see the Dehumanizer tour. And, I, you know, it was so neat because, you know, back then they were still doing, you know, a full Sabbath show. So they were mixing in the old Ozzy shit. And, yeah. I, and, we, and we both agree, you know, we'd rather, you know, him not do the Ozzy shit. But I got to see it, you know, and then, yeah. you know... The last show I saw, the Heaven and Hell, it was strictly the Dio stuff, and then that was fantastic, you know. But goddamn, yeah, falling off the edge of the world—that's the uh, favorite song off Mob Rules, and they didn't do it on the Mob Rules tour, but they did it on that Dio years tour. Oh man, it was so good, and uh, you know, they'll just—they'll never be another fucking Dio. Nope. And. Uh, Man, and I just love that, you know, we decided to do this episode. And I even told you, you know, after, after the last episode we did, it's like, okay, we love the fans. You know, we're knocking out these fan episodes. But, you know, we have to do something that reminds us of why we started this podcast. Yep. You know, and, and you know, just stuff that drives. And as much as, yeah, it's great when we do shows where one likes it and one doesn't. And it's funny, it's entertaining but doing an episode like this is why Ralph and I are together and why we have this, you know, you know, why we do this is albums like this that are in our hearts, you know, it that unites us like the Sammy Hagar. Age. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And this burns even, even brighter than our hatred for Sammy Hagar is our love for albums like this and, and what they mean to us and, and how they've held up over the years. And it's it's just amazing. Uh, that's know. why that's why the next time we do a fucking episode like this, we're gonna knock out a fucking motorhead album. Fuck <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm ready for another fucking motorhead review. Hell yeah, man. But I just want to say before we go back to Ronnie James Dio. This was released May 25th, 1983, produced by Ronnie James Dio. And, uh, but we'll give Dio the last word on the artwork for the album seemed to cause much of a stir. And what was he thinking about when he did it? Well, we, we wanted a, uh, an album cover that was going to be just what it turned out to be, which was, uh, uh, fantasy on the fantasy side but with a little bit of reality chucked in which was uh, uh, to most people's eyes a monster drowning a priest a priest in chains uh, which was going to be a little bit controversial of course uh, good but I wanted to do that because I wanted people I wanted it to be controversial so I could explain to them what this was all about and when they would say why do you have a monster killing a priest I could always say how do you know it's not a priest killing a monster and you know in the day and age that we live in I think my uh, my thoughts were correct. Um, so, you know, and the whole purpose of all that imagery and being able to say that was, because I wanted to say to people, do not judge this book by its cover. Don't judge anyone's life by what you see. You judge them by what's inside of them. It's the heart and the soul and the spirit that counts, not what you see. So don't make those kind of hasty judgments, because that's always been my philosophy. So there's my philosophy on the cover of this album, perhaps. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it, it was an album cover that, uh, most parents wouldn't let their kids put up as a poster, uh, which I guess worked pretty well 
You know, I, because kids want to be rebellious, and they, they, as soon as the parents say no, there you go. But we didn't do it for that reason. But it became an offshoot of that kind of artwork that parents were very fearful of what kind of uh, evil was going to befall their children if they looked at that poster. All right. Well, that was our review of Holy Diver. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. This was a fucking pleasure to talk about. Holy shit. Why, why didn't more fans, like, why didn't you give us Dio albums? Yeah, I know. <laughs> what the fuck? Give us Monster Magnet. <laughs> wow. Hey, I, I love Monster Magnet, but... No, I'm sorry. God, I didn't mean Monster Magnet. Um, Galactic Cowboy. That's what I thought. That's funny. <laughs> but God damn, I, I'd even rather talk about Angry Machines. Fuck it. At least it's Dio. It has some good tracks. I liked it more than Magica. Um, mm. you should give it another chance. I mean, dude, yeah, there's clunkers on there, but Double Monday, Black, uh, Sister, there's some good tracks on there. It's a dark, angry album. It's kind of like Strange Highways Part Two, where really Strange Highways was Dehumanizer Part Two. Right, right, but yeah, I'd have to. I, I mean, Magica and Angry Machines are definitely at the bottom for me. You know, but, uh, you know, you, you, you talk about Dio, and we both agree, this was the pinnacle. Everything was downhill after this. There was never anything this solid, you know, yep. and we, you know, and other albums we agree and disagree. You know, I, I like uh, Dream Evil a little bit more than you do. Well, I, I love probably like, Right, but I, but I mean. Well, I thought was a solid album that kind of like, like kind of got bad at the end like the last three right. songs horrible horrible fucking pick of a single it could have been a dreamer oh yes see i love that song i, love that I song. but do you think it should have been the lead single it was just bad i thought it was bad i don't know i, th I thought it was great for the time i mean i mean i remember seeing that on mtv and man i ran right out and got that and Sun, that was that superman or uh, night people would be in a better choice well they, the they, 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 they might be better songs but i'm thinking back at the time too and uh i loved it i remember that was the first deal album that i bought the first studio album that i bought uh when it came out because i got into them during sacred heart and i bought uh what was the ep Intermission. Uh, yeah, Intermission. I, I bought that, but the first studio album was, was fucking uh, Dream Evil. I love I love Dream Evil. I think it's a great album. I just think it just uh, tapers off at the end, but man. And, and and I love Lock Up the Wolves. Oh, I love that album. You know, I again, I think it's a little bit too long, and there's some yeah. shit that, you know, should have followed, you know, the rule of ten. But, oh, no, my God. No, you know it sucks. And I didn't notice this till later. One of my favorite songs on Lock Up the Wolves is Why Are They Watching Me? Uh, you know, and he played it live. I drove to Lakeland to see it. Well, I bought that Dio box set, which brings all the albums. Dude, they took that song off the vinyl. What? And, yeah, and they left My Eyes, which I love My Eyes, but My Eyes was the bonus track on the CD. So why don't you take it off the, the fucking My I love My Eyes, though, but... What, what was it about? That was a bonus track? I don't, my, I don't remember. My Eyes was I, a bonus track. Okay, because I, I bought it on CD, and I remember, you know, I mean, I have vivid memories of, of when I bought 
lock up the wolves because I had a, you know, a friend of mine who died right around the time that came out and that's how I was listening to so I always remember that but My Eyes is one of my favorite Dio tracks of all time and it, it that that's a song that all brings me to tears almost when I hear it yeah it's amazing but but you know I mean I'm, I'm, why would they take off why are they watching me off the vinyl that's like one of the my favorite songs off that album yeah, take off Evil on McQueen Street or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's a couple other ones I can think of, you know. But oh my God, that album has Wild One and Born on the Sun and Twisted. And I think I think, you know, if if you look at the you know the Dio band, uh, Rowan Robinson's my second favorite guitar player that ever played, you know, in the Dio band. Man, I just read, man, he just joined one of these bands. You know, all these bands that are getting together that mm. get all musicians. I can't remember who else is in the lineup, but Ron Robinson just joined a badass, like, lineup. There's a bunch of killer musicians. I can't remember who they are. Yeah, but no, he he, he was my second favorite by far. Yeah, he ripped. And I, I love what, what, you know, Goldie did on Dream Evil. But when he came back to the band, I'm like, eh. You know, it's too much third-rate Blackmore for me. Uh, uh, but Ro- Rowan, I thought, had that fire that Vivian had. You know? But it was a weird time, too, because it's like, okay, Ozzy gets Zach Wild, who was like 18. <laughs> you know? And then Dio goes and gets Rowan, who's 17. You know? And it, it, it did look desperate at the time. If you remember at that time, to me at least, it looked like, okay, he's trying to copy Ozzy now, getting a teenager to play guitar. Yeah, uh, right. But I but I thought he, he did fantastic on it. You know, it, it sucks. I wish, you know, I wish Apathy was on there and I wish Jimmy Bain was on there. It was a weird lineup that he had for that. He had Jen Jensen on keyboards who went to play uh, for Ingve. Uh, no, he was with Ingve before that. Oh, was it before? And then he went to Dio? Okay. Well, probably went to Ingve after, but I know, yeah, yeah, Jensen was on Marching Out and all those albums. Oh, okay. All right. With- well, I know, he, I know he had Simon Wright, one of the most boring drummers in rock and roll on that album. Oh, my God. Simon Wright. I don't get it. He might be a nice guy, but I'm sorry. He is a boring fucking drummer. Yeah. I, 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 I don't mind him, but yeah, he doesn't do anything spectacular he's just a drummer you know? yeah yeah to, to me uh simon wright is the original matt sorum <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know i guess you're right but i don't think matt sorum can do wild one yeah true so he's got that yeah but we love fucking dio oh yeah god damn what a what a fun episode and you know, the good thing is, I think we've done, what, we've done Dream Evil. Have we done another Dio album? I, uh, didn't we do Last in Line? I could be wrong. I got a bad memory now. I uh, know. I think or we Strange might. Highways, maybe. No, no, we didn't do Strange Highways. I know we did Dream Evil. I think maybe we did Last in Line. But that's a great thing. We have so many more Dio albums we could do. Yeah. Uh, so many so. more albums we can do. Oh, yeah, I know. And, and what's, what's funny is the last thing I listened to before we did this review was Motorhead. 
because I, I listened to Dio twice. I listened to the interviews. And then I'm like, let me listen to some other shit to pick me up before. And the very last song before we did this was Rock and Roll by, by Motorhead. One of my favorite songs. So, yeah, I mean, that that's the thing. We love you guys. We're doing these we're doing these fan episodes but you know i'll warn you a lot of these fan episodes are some weird shit that probably has limited appeal and we're going to do our best to make them entertaining yeah, and that's 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 the thing we can polish a fucking turd we yeah. we can take anything and make it funny and make it something that you will love and laugh at but i cannot wait till we get back to where we're talking about you know the shit we truly love or even the stuff we truly hate, you know, but at least somebody has a, one of us has a different opinion on it. But, you know, this felt so good to me. And we're recording this. We, The episode I'm putting up tomorrow, <laughs> we recorded last night. And I said, let's do one just for us. Let, let, let's do it, man. And this was such a joy. And, uh reminds me of why you and me started this and and uh why terrence isn't here yeah <laughs> wait till terrence found out that this sold two million he'll do an episode <laughs> yeah he'll be like i recorded this months ago but i didn't want to put it out yet <laughs> fucking douchebag so come back next week when we go back to the fan episodes and we do an album you never heard of by a band you've never you've never heard of Oh, the horror. But we'll make that shit entertaining right here on the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. Look out. I see a